0: Where we are uh, continuing our walk through the book of Colossians this morning. Uh, last week, I took you on a bit of a rabbit trail, and uh, uh, we talked about essentially what is Scripture. If we're going to read Scripture, then what is it? What is it useful for? What, is it, what does it do? Uh, why would we read it? And, and maybe even more importantly, how, how would we read it? And, and I, I told you that the way that you read the text is the way that you will live the text. The way that you read the text is the way that you will live the text. So I want to do that this morning. So we're going to jump back in uh, to this living, breathing, real, raw, honest, engaging, practical, relevant text with both feet. Let's jump in boldly. Uh, let's practice what I preached last week. Let's, let's faithfully improvise this thing and see what it has to teach us about how to live well now. So we are in uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, getting through three more verses this morning, so we're humming along at quite a pace. Uh, chapter 2 verse 8 is where we'll begin. This is what Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ for in Christ the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. he is the head. Over every power and authority. All right, that's pretty rich. Uh, I just I couldn't go on any further than that. It might be helpful, Shannon, to have verse eight up on the screen here for the next couple minutes at least, so uh, so that you can refer to it as I'm uh, as I'm talking about it. Uh, So it seems like in our passage here, there are some philosophies, there are some ways of thinking. What a what Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmet call some regimes of thought that are threatening to take people captive, right? See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. There's some sort of way of thinking, way of of engaging, some sort of regime of thought that is threatening to take uh, the Colossians captive. Uh, Or as the Revised Standard Version says, Threatening to make prey of us. I like the way that that reads it. As if it's some sort of vulture that that wants to scoop us up and make prey of us. There's some sort of hollow, deceptive philosophy that wants to take us captive. That's an interesting Greek word there for for take captive. Uh, It's the word uh, silagin. Silagin. Here we go. Syllogogon. It's the word silagogen. Uh Which uh, Paul uses this word uh, or, or a word similar to this often. He talks about the idea of taking something captive, taking our thoughts captive. He talks about this idea often. But when he uses that idea, he's almost always using a different Greek word. He doesn't use this word syllogon. Uh, he, he almost never uses it. So it's kind of an odd use here. Uh, NT Wright, I'm not sure if I totally agree with him or if, or if he's onto something kind of interesting here. He suggests that Paul might be making a pun here between the words syllogogon and synagogue that because they in some ways kind of rhyme, that he might be using this word on purpose in order to play these, these two words together. Kind of like saying, see to it that no one snatches you as prey from the flock of Christ to lock you up instead within Judaism. That's kind of, that's kind of interesting. I don't, I don't know. What, whatever. That's kind of interesting, though. Uh, but there's some sort of philosophy that wants to take us captive and Paul describes it with a couple words. He describes it as hollow. It's the Greek word kenos. And it's basically what you would think. It's empty, it's vain, it's foolish, it's nothingness. This is a useless way of thinking about the world. There's nothing there. It's void, it's empty, it's vain, it's hollow. Uh, Walsh and Kiesmat call these philosophies vacuous visions of life vacuous visions of life and I think that certainly gets at this empty useless nature of these philosophies there's nothing there it's a vacuum it may appear like there's something grandiose on the outside but when you peel back the layers and look inside of these ways of thinking these regimes of truth it's quite vacuous it's empty empty, it's hollow uh, it's useless and then to make it worse these philosophies aren't just useless they're actually deceptive they're they're act- They're purposefully trying to take us off track. We're we're grounded. We're rooted in Christ. uh, And so then these these empty, hollow philosophies are actually being quite deceptive in that they want to take us away from center. They want to to take us astray from the truth. The hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world are misleading, fraudulent, prideful, self-serving, and anything but altruistic. The hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world are misleading, fraudulent, prideful, self-serving, and anything but altruistic. They come for us. They swirl above us like vultures, waiting to to devour, preying on our weak and undisciplined flesh. And as Paul says here in the last line here, we actually choose these philosophies over Christ. We actually pick these philosophies to follow, these ways of thinking to ascribe value to instead of just following Christ. Uh, so ultimately, what that makes these philosophies is idolatrous. Uh, we're choosing this idol, this way of thinking about the world, of, this way of thinking about life, Uh, instead of christ and it ultimately makes them idolatrous when we allow ourselves to be preyed upon by these hollow and deceptive philosophies in whatever form they may take for each of us and we'll talk about that when we succumb to any sort of useless self-serving way of thinking a vacuous vision of life i think that we have wandered into the realm of idolatry At that point, we've made something, some way of thinking uh, more important. We've given it a higher priority than thinking the way of Christ, than living the way of Christ. And whatever that philosophy is, it has become an idol for us. So now, before we get back to Colossians in a moment... I I think we need to talk about idolatry for just a moment. If if that's what this is, if ultimately that's what this is, is idolatry, then then a few quick thoughts on idolatry. Idolatry comes from a place of trying to fill our lives with something of meaning. Uh, we, We feel like something is lacking. Uh, something doesn't quite make sense. There's chaos, there's confusion, there's doubt, there's wonder. uh, We we don't feel like things are right within us. And so idolatry comes from a place where we're trying to fill that void. Life is lacking of meaning, and, and so we want to find some sort of answers. And we, so we fill that void, that answerless place, with, with something. We're grasping at straws for something that will give us answers or comfort or sometimes even numbness. I can't figure this out. Uh, life is too painful. Life is too hard. Instead of filling that with, with something uh, helpful, useful, man, I'd rather just not feel at all. Uh, and so we just numb ourselves. To that pain. So the idol might look like a million different things for us. It, it might be Drugs or alcohol, sex, money, work, hobbies, shopping, TV, social media, relationships, food, but whatever it is, we are desperately trying to fill some sort of emptiness, some sort of void with something that will give us meaning. But the tragedy of idolatry, however, uh, is that in our emptiness, in that longing and void and desperate search for meaning, what we usually fill ourselves up with is something that is equally empty. It's something that ultimately won't fill that chasm that we're trying to fill. Instead of landing on that which will uh, actually fill the void in our empty lives, we succumb to things that will leave us feeling even more empty. Just that that one more promotion, and I'll finally feel feel fulfilled in my job. Just just one more raise, and I'll finally be able to afford that nicer house and that that boat for my family. Just, Just one more drink. Just one more hit, just one more time, yet the idol always proves to be unfulfilling. Right? That's the nature of idolatry. It's always hollow and deceptive. Uh, it, it, prom- it, it seems promising. It seems like it might fill that void, and yet in the end, it's useless. It's hollow. Ultimately, idolatry relies on a forgetfulness of God's faithfulness. Ultimately idolatry relies on a forgetfulness of god's faithfulness we forget the greatness and provision of god we forget that god is the one that can ultimately fill all of those empty places within us we forget that we worship the god of abraham isaac and jacob the god who brought the israelites out of egypt and into the promised land the god who provides for our daily needs the god who comforts and encourages us in the midst of our pain the god who sees us through our struggle. We forget about God's faithfulness. We don't tell and remember the stories of faith often and fervently enough. We become sensitized to the hollow and deceptive philosophies that swirl around us daily, numb to the empire's work all around us, and we try to fill this void with things that will never fill the void, forgetting the fact that we have a a bigger calling, a greater calling, and we become numb to that, uh, and, and the empire often is the thing that numbs us. We forget that there is a good, beautiful, life-giving, void-filling way, and then there's a plethora of unhelpful ways. And sometimes we become numb to the, to the idolatrous ways of the world that swirl all around us. We live and breathe in these ways of thinking about the world that aren't helpful, that take us away from Christ all the time, so often that sometimes we even kind of forget uh, the thing that, that we want to hold most dearly right out in front of us. I, I, don't, know if, uh, I don't know if any of you watched the TV show The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, it's uh, this Hulu original uh, it's dark, but it's brilliant, and it's, uh, it's this really great show. Uh, but it's, essentially, it's the tale of this kind of post-apocalyptic world. The, the earth has gone to hell in a handbasket. Things have kind of spiraled out of control to the point where... There's great calamity in the land, and these people, uh, they happen to be really fundamentalist Christians that are like twisting scripture to use it in really bad ways, uh, and they form this new country called Gilead, and they're ruling with kind of an iron fist. It's this really oppressive, dark, broken place, uh, and it, it seems hopeless, and, and yet the whole storyline of the show is that there's these little threads of hope, and there's little Uh, surges of resistance that keep cropping up where maybe, just maybe, these few heroic characters will kind of rise to the surface and topple this oppressive regime called Gilead. And the main character, her name is June, and she's one of these hopeful characters. She's this incredible, strong woman. She's so fantastic in in so many ways. And uh, she's having this conversation with this other person in the show that that shares her same occupation her her name is janine and june and janine are talking and janine had this baby that she never gets to see anymore i don't want to spoil too much of the show but janine is kind of pining over over wanting to see her baby again i wish i wish i could go see my baby And, and june says to her you know you can't do that and janine turns to her in this kind of harsh prophetic line, she says, You sound a lot like them. And June, who's been this heroic, resistant kind of character who's standing up against the machine, she realizes in this moment, like, You're darn right I do. Like, in that moment, I sounded exactly like the the philosophy that I've been opposing for the entirety of this the show. I have I've swam in this hollow, deceptive kind of way of thinking, this regime of truth, and, and it's kind of absorbed me into it at times as well. And she kind of has this moment of clarity again, like, you're right. I sounded like them for a moment, but it won't happen again. It's this beautiful scene, but I found myself thinking about that as, as I think about us kind of being absorbed by the philosophies of the world, so much so that sometimes uh, they become idolatrous to us, in a way that we put them before the things that should be important to us, which are the things of Christ. If we aren't careful, we get absorbed into the culture that surrounds us, rather than standing as a prophetic, beautiful, alternative voice for God's kingdom. We are meant to be different. We are meant to sound different. We are meant to act different. Everything that we do and say should sound different than the ways of the world, because God's kingdom is a beautiful, good Unhollow, undeceptive way of thinking about the world. Uh, When we forget God's faithfulness, past, present, and future, we can easily succumb to the idolatry of the world, the hollow and deceptive philosophies all around us. And there are a few ways that I see this happening in our society where, where we have become numb to the idolatry around us because we swim in it daily. We are so absorbed in it that I think sometimes we don 't even realize the ways in which we 've just become a part of the craziness and I was thinking about that this week as I prepared. I was thinking about kind of what 's idolatrous for us or or what has the potential to be idolatrous for us. And I'm sure if we sat in a circle and we talked, we could think of 20 things that become idolatrous for us where we don't realize it's happening but slowly but surely those things become priorities and the things of God end up becoming uh, lesser than. Uh, But I was thinking about capitalism which, which has all the potential in the world to be this beautiful system, right? It... The system of capitalism is meant to benefit its people. It's supposed to be helpful to people. The freedom that is inherent in the system is supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be good. We're a part of this thing that is supposed to be better than the other economic systems of our world. Uh, But... We simultaneously exist in a system that, is, that makes it really, really easy for the rich to get richer and the poor to stay down. It makes it really hard for people to make it work in our country, and it makes it really easy for other people to, to succeed. We exist in a world where CEOs make 303 times what their employees make, where the average CEO makes $16 million a year. While the average worker makes 53,000. Where the wealthiest 1% in our country own 40% of our nation's wealth. I'm sorry, but that's weird. That, and it doesn't feel right. But for some reason, and I do it too, we fight for this system tooth and nail. We we make excuses for it all the time. We boast about capitalism's greatness. We seek to spread it around the world. It's the best way to live, the best philosophy of life, and everyone should have it. Uh, And the fact that some of you are squirming in your seats right now and thinking I'm addressing some sort of taboo subject, I think is evidence that our economic system has a tendency to become an idol for us. The way that we think about money and the way that we think about the economy, I, th- I think the very fact that you're squirming, and that I don't want to be saying any of what I'm saying right now, I think it means that this has a tendency to become an idol for us. Jesus talks about money all the time, and it is always about greedy people and about giving our money away to those who don't have, and, and about rich people struggling to get into heaven. And it's really provocative, and it's really challenging. It's really prophetic. And I'm not sure Jesus would be pleased with our current economic model. And I think that Paul might call it a hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's got potential, but it can become an idol really, really easily. Or I was thinking about politics. Which is supposed to be great. And is supposed to be this beautiful thing that is supposed to help the people. It's, it's supposed to be this communal endeavor to care for the common good of people. To care for our cities. The, the word politics comes from the root word polis, which means the people, the the communal people inside of a city. It's supposed to be this beautiful system that is set up to take care of people, and yet laws are passed daily that benefit the politicians and their big donors at the expense of everyone else. It happens on a daily basis. Uh, where, where some people get helped and some people don't. We have two parties currently in our country that are so against each other that they almost never stand for anything. They just fight each other all the time, and they're not actually helping anyone in their cities where whom they are representing. Uh, each new administration just undoes all the work of the previous administration. They just spend the first couple years just doing away with everything that the, the previous uh, people uh, put into action. Uh, we're beginning uh, this new season where we're going to see way too many political campaigns, ads on TV, and they're all damaging to the opponent and aren't Actually, promoting any sort of platform over and over and over again—this this thing, this system—that should be good and should be helpful. Where politicians should be getting into this uh, as a public uh, 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 adventure, adventure uh, where they're they're trying to seek the the welfare of the state. It's supposed to be this kind of nonprofit, good of your heart kind of endeavor, and yet. It, it has become so corrupt, and we just flip, flippantly overlook this corrupt system and kind of shrug our shoulders and say, "Well, democracy." And, and I don't know why I don't know why we give so much leeway to this corrupt system, and we don't call it for what it is. We don't we don't call it uh, uh, corrupt. Uh, and again, you're maybe squirming in your seats and and you're worried for my job and I, I, whatever. Because talking about the failings of our political and democratic system has become taboo. It's just something we don't talk about. Even though Jesus and Paul and the early church were incredibly political and constantly stood up against the broken systems of government... Uh, they're always uh, standing up against oppression and fighting for people who, are, who have the boot of the empire on their neck. They're always standing up against uh, corrupt regimes. and e- In fact, every time that they say Jesus is Lord, they were simultaneously saying that Caesar was not. And I can't think of a more political statement that you could make than say that Caesar is not Lord, that Caesar is not in charge, that ultimately we have a higher power that is that is ultimately in charge of this universe. So if I can't, if we can't call out the philosophies of our world as being hollow and deceptive when they come in direct opposition to the teachings and the way of Jesus, then I think we've slipped into idolatry. I think we've slipped into a point where we've made something else more important than the God of the universe. Uh, and Paul says here, as we move on in the text, Jesus is the head over every power and authority. And far, But far too often, I get my priorities out of whack, and I forget that. And I try to put something else in place a, as the head over, uh, over every power and authority, when ultimately it should be Jesus. We must remember the good news That Paul offers us here. That Christ is the full picture of who God is and what God is like. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. He gives the full picture of the deity. And so to ascribe value to anything contradictory to the God that we see in Jesus is plain and simply idolatry. When Jesus declares himself the way, the truth, and the life, he is declaring any way of thinking and living that doesn't line up with him to be misleading, meaningless, and harmful, to be idolatrous. We don't have to wonder... Uh, about what a meaningful and trustworthy vision of life looks like, we have it in Jesus. He is the fullness of God. He is the fullness of the deity. We have this in Jesus, a clear and beautiful picture of God through his Son, the fullness of the deity, the one who is the fullness of all that was, is, and ever will be, the one who reigns over every other power and authority. Uh, and he ought to be at the, at the top of our priority list. So, let's not succumb to the shallowness and emptiness of worldly wisdom when we have the fullness of all that is right at our fingertips. Let's not allow anything else to take precedent in our life over the fullness of all that is and was and ever will be. Let's not settle for false hope and shallow answers when the way, the truth, and the life, the fullness of the deity is constantly reminding us of his goodness and his truth. Instead, let's live in and into the fullness, greatness, and beauty of the Jesus movement that his way is never hollow and deceptive, but always meaningful and good. Let's embrace fully the one who is head over all powers and authorities. Let's allow the one who is the fullness of all that is to mold us into the fullness of all he has created us to be. Let's pray. God, we repent right now. I repent. I take this moment To say sorry for the ways in which I have put other things first in my life. The ways in which I have tried to fill my life with uh, things that are way less important than you. The way in which I have tried to meet my own needs with things that have only proven to be hollow and deceptive. God, I want to put you first. We want to put you first. Help us to do that. Give us the courage. Give us the strength. Give us the wisdom to do so. Uh, to make you our priority in every decision that we make. Help us to never put other things ahead of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.